You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I got a new show, new podcast I want to tell you about. It just came out in May, and it's called Time Sensitive. Time Sensitive is uh, an interview show, and the guests are leading minds who have made a profound impact in their field. People who have contributed to the larger conversation are concerned with the planet we all share. They are folks who have a distinct perspective on time. Uh, Peter Sarsgaard been a guest on the show, artist Teresita Fernandez, AI pioneer and VC Kai-Fu Lee, a whole host of incredible people already on the show and many more to come. I should also mention that Time Sensitive is uh, done by a new media company. It's called The Slowdown, and The Slowdown is focused on culture, on nature, on the future. It's a really interesting new company. It was co-founded by Spencer Bailey and Andrew Zuckerman, who also happened to be the co-hosts of Time Sensitive. Go check it out. You can find them on their website, timesensitive.fm. You'll find show notes there, edited transcripts of the interviews, everything you would need. You can also find them, of course, everywhere you find podcasts, including this one, which starts right now. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, co-host, joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer at longform.org. Hey, you guys. Hey. Here we are. You notice I'm not sweaty this time when I arrive? Usually I'm city bike sweaty. Yeah. Rode a Revel here. What's that? <laughs> this is it's not a sponsorship. Electric scooter. It's like a moped rental thing. You do it with your phone. I almost died. I'm so happy to be alive. You should not ride it in downtown Brooklyn. It's fine in the like outskirts, but it was super scary. It's like a it's like a startup uh, like bike share thing, except they're mopeds, and their like base of operations is directly in front of Aaron's house. So every day he just walks <laughs> out, and there's like mopeds there for the ride. And I've been enjoying riding them locally, but I this is the first time I've taken them out of like the area I know, and it was completely terrifying riding them on Fulton Street Mall. Well, I'm glad you're here, man. Glad you're here. Uh, who else was here this week, Evan? Uh, this week I talked to David Epstein. He is a former reporter for Sports Illustrated, for ProPublica. He's recently written his second book. His first book was called The Sports Gene. Uh, his second book is called Range. It's about uh, generalization versus specialization. Uh, I've known Dave for a while, so I've been hearing about this book in bits and pieces over the years, and it's really fun to see it out. It's uh, it's an incredibly well-researched piece of journalism. I'm sold. Classic Epstein. Uh, what's uh, what, what's going on this summer? You know what, guys? Uh, what's going on this summer is that our friends at MailChimp are bringing a group of authors again to the Decatur Book Festival as part of their Read This Summer program. That's the best. It is the best. Evan and I did it a couple of years ago. The three of us all picked uh, a bunch of authors to bring down to the Decatur Book Festival, which happens in September in Atlanta. And this year, uh, the honor of curating the list went to our friend Jenna Wortham, previous guest on the show. Listen to her long-form podcast. Uh, She's bringing an incredible group. I think it's a dozen people. Uh, But you can read all about them and get their books on readthissummer.com, all brought to you by MailChimp. Here's Evan and David Epstein. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, 
How's Andre? He's good. This is the first time with my book out that I've been away for a couple days. Uh And so I'm getting the videos and like feeling very detached because he's discovered his hands. And so he's grabbing everything and putting it right in his mouth. And I'm I'm a little sad that I'm not there. Yeah. I would imagine like from your first book to your second book, traveling for it is a different experience now. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's crazy how much my life has changed, right? Like between books, I like totally got out of sports. I changed publishers. I changed agents. I changed cities. I changed jobs, basically changed like everything I cover and had a kid. Yeah. So yeah, but it, it does make the travel like feel very different for sure. I, on the bright side, being a writer, you know, and having an incredible degree of autonomy allowed me to be like there all the time the first, you know, couple months. So that's been great. <laughs> yeah, that is that's the trade off. Um, it, it strikes me now that uh, with this book, you've set up a situation where people are going to ask you about your son and like how you're getting him into different activities. Yeah. For the coming years. So give me the basic premise. So the book Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World, is basically about how society has come to overvalue specialists and and undervalue generalists and people who have breadth and career zigzag and often are late starters. So that's kind of the the short pitch. And I feel like there's a way in which you could have written this book. It has this Tiger Woods versus Roger Federer thing, Mm -hmm. which is sort of like, I feel like when I talked to you about the book over the years... Tiger versus Roger was a shorthand to describe it to the extent to which I actually thought that was the title. It was the title of the proposal. Oh, it uh, was the title of the proposal. And it was the way, like, the symbol that I thought about as I was going about this reporting. I mean, that, in some ways, this project grew out of, after the Sports Gene last book, I, I was invited to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference to debate Malcolm Gladwell. First time we ever met, like, 10,000 hours versus the Sports Gene. And right. You know, he's clever and I didn't want to get embarrassed. So I was like totally freaking out and and just like tried to anticipate what his arguments would be. I said, well, he's got to argue for early hyper-specialization in sports. This debate was about the development of athletes. And so I went and looked at the data to see, you know, what we know. And all the longitudinal studies showed that the athletes who go on to become elite play a variety of sports. They have a so-called sampling period, play a variety of sports, gain a breadth of general skills, learn about their interests, learn about their abilities, systematically delay specialization until later than peers who plateau at a lower level. And Roger Federer fit that model perfectly, like played a ton of different sports. Mother was a tennis coach, refused to coach him because he wouldn't return balls normally. And so it wasn't fun for her. Like when he got, when coaches wanted to bump him up a level, he declined because he just wanted to stay with his friends and talk about pro wrestling. And actually, hilariously, when he got good enough to get interviewed by a local paper when he was a teenager and the reporter asked, like, well, if you ever become a pro, what will you buy with your first paycheck? And he says a Mercedes, and his mother's appalled, right? And so she asked the reporter if she can listen to the interview recording. And it turns out he said Mercedes in, in Swiss German accent. It was just He just wanted more CDs. And so when she saw that, she's like, okay. So Roger himself in 2006 highlighted how different his story from Tiger Woods is, who, who you know, had his first putter at seven months and by two was on national television uh, showing off his golf swing. And my question was, which of these models is the norm? The Tiger one's obviously way more famous, but which is the norm? And it turns out it's the Roger one. And so when we had that debate, he sort of said afterward, Malcolm was like, you know what you got me on was that Roger versus Tiger thing. And we kind of became running buddies, actually, over in not far from here, off of Fort Green Park. And we would talk about it on our own time and just started to think of like Roger and Tiger as these like models. And so the proposal for the book was sort of like, I'm going to go through domains and see when you should be a Roger and when you should be a Tiger, basically. And as I was doing that, I found the Roger side of things like much more interesting and in many more domains that weren't sports. Um, and, and a lot of other books that had already gone like to town on specialization. Mm-hmm. And, and so I thought, so it ended up being like all the Roger stuff or the the generalists. Well, let's talk about Gladwell for a second uh, while we're here yeah. because I found that so fascinating. I actually went back and watched that. And there's uh, a new one. You know, we got invited back. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And you can go look up the videos of you guys talking and there's a way in which, because you mentioned the 10,000 hours, you talk about 10,000 hours a little bit in your first book. Yeah. And that was prior to you having met him or... Yeah. Did you read that Malcolm Gladwell book and, and be like, mm, I don't think this quite gets it. Did you think of what you were doing as sort of a challenge to this argument that was out there that was, it's not his, it's sort of a misnomer that it's his idea. It's like popularized by him in yeah. a different way. But yeah. did you think of it as you two were in conflict? No. Originally, no, not at all. My original proposal mentioned his book and this other one called The Talent Code that are 10,000 hours books as books that mine would be similar to. Mm. So, 
And it wasn't until I started diving into that research and saying, like, this research is not what it's been portrayed to be. Mm. And so I'd go to the researchers and ask. And at first I was like, I must be the crazy one because all these, like, prominent people are on the 10,000 hour rule. And eventually after like a year, I was like, I'm not the crazy one. Like this is, this work is not saying what people say it does. And they're ignoring all this other like work that's much more rigorous basically. And so then, so the book ended up bearing almost no resemblance to the proposal. And in fact, I've never gotten called on this, but in the sports gene, I cite one of my own magazine articles as something that's like a wrong portrayal of some of this stuff. And it's not because I like it passed fact checking when Sports Illustrated still had rigorous fact checking um, because the quotes from the scientific studies were right. You know, PhDs backed it up, but they were they were actually peddling conclusions that could not be made from their research. So once I had a year to that, which was a scary thing. So I wrote a 7000 word article. And then after a year of further research, I had to contradict my own article. Mm. So originally, I did not think I was going to be in conflict with Gladwell. And even once I finished the book, I realized very much that my ideal was in conflict with him, but I was a first-time author and I didn't think that I would like get on his radar or anything. Like I thought this was just sort of my side passion project and got lucky and it sort of took on a life of its own, but I knew my ideal was in conflict with him. But then the kind of fireworks that the whoever set up that debate, quote-unquote debate, yeah. expected, yeah. Uh, it's much more of a banter than it is a kind of like two people disagreeing. And I'm curious if that's, do you feel like that's, you're both removed from the research? Like if two of the researchers were there, would they be kind of battling each other? Whereas you are kind of like more playing around with the ideas? It's a good question. And because the researchers, <laughs> the researchers that are in conflict, I've noticed, never come to the same place. Like they go to their own conference where everybody already believes their stuff. And mm. so you, so so with me and Malcolm, the, the lack of fire, one, because we have some common ground, like practice is important. That's uncontroversial. I'm not trying to say that it's not. But there's a, a sort of UK version of Gladwell, I guess, for lack of a better description, named Matthew Syed. And he wrote a 10,000 hours book. And when we were on BBC radio together, then it was like, he was like, First of all, you're wrong. And second of all, even if you were right, it would be the wrong message. You know, it was like, I don't even need to evaluate it because it's wrong, even that you're writing it, no matter what the science says. So I think I think it was sort of really like Gladwell setting the tone where he easily could have like, you know, put his literary boot on my neck or whatever. But he came to it really open minded and sort of if, if you see like the update video toward the end, he says, yeah, I, I think I now think I conflated two issues. The fact that like a lot of practice is important with the idea that you should start you know, if you want to be the best at X, you should only do X from as early as possible. And so I think he sort of was open to, like, updating his his mental models. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I had – he's been on the podcast three times. And one of the times he sort of talked about just – he just sort of loves intellectual debate. And yeah. that people kind of think he's more attached to his ideas, even that he's written down, than yeah. he actually – is well, most writers of high stature who get known for an idea are. I mean, I, I think the Matthew Syed reaction was much more normal, where you're like, "This idea is blowing up for me. Like, I'm not moving an inch." Yeah, you know? that's your brand. Yeah, that yeah. you're out there selling. Yeah, uh, books under. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of appreciated just an NPR review of Range. It highlighted that I repeatedly mention disagreement or where specialization is good, and and kind of like, even though it's not a bulk of the book, and I don't dwell on it, like step back and saying like. There is dissent and, and we need specialists also. And so I, I like that they they had that because I don't want to get too attached to my own ideas because anytime you write about science, like something's going to be wrong. The problem is you don't know what it is yet, mm -hmm. right? And so you better be ready to update your beliefs as you learn more. So let's talk a little bit about how you sort of designed the book because actually the thing I was going to say a few minutes ago when we started on the Roger versus Tiger was that that's like a billboard thing that I knew about the book mm -hmm. from talking about it over the years and it strikes me that you could have, this book could be entirely about sports. And this book goes across so many domains from chess to IQ to education to like innovation, science. So where did you make the decision to broaden that, first of all? Very early for a number of reasons. One, because I sort of viewed the sports gene as my capstone project for sports and I kind of got into sports journalism to write about something very specific. And once I had done that, it was some sort of a matter of time before I think I was going to switch. And and I've found that like switching jobs has, has been the way that I've accumulated skills, right? So when I was like a, a staff writer at Sports Illustrated, I left to be an intern at ProPublica and went like shortly after co-breaking the Alex Rodriguez steroid story, I went and was like scanning documents for someone at ProPublica. But that's how like you build your... Then I go back to ProPublica and suddenly I have these skills that nobody else there has. It turned out to be like 
both financially and like skill wise, like one of the best moves I ever made going to be an intern. Um, so I, I knew I knew I wanted to be broader and I wanted to step outside of the sports world. And ultimately, another thing that affected me a bit was I started getting invited to like business conferences after the sports gene, which mm-hmm. was a total mystery. I, I, that was a world I didn't know existed. And all of a sudden I'm getting invited and I'm like, why are these people interested in me? And then you sort of realize like they're interested in performance, whether it's like a chef or a pilot or an athlete or whatever, and how people, those high achievers attack their problems or whatever. Even though the sports team was specifically about athletes and why yeah. athletic performance is better now than it has been oh, yeah, yeah. in the past, oh. it wasn't, it didn't talk about those other domains. Totally. And so I'd be getting invited somewhere and people were asking me questions about like their HR policy, you know, like and, and hiring and recruiting. And I'm like, you know, that's really interesting. And I'm glad it resonates with you enough to ask these questions. But at the same time, I think in many of these cases, sports can be a uniquely bad environment from which to extrapolate to a lot of other things. Like sports is zero sum. It's totally controlled. There's a lot of repetitive patterns. You know, it's in a very constrained environment. And so I think sometimes when we extrapolate things from these zero sum kinds of setups that are sports, the extrapolation like doesn't work that well in the rest of the world. So I sort of kind of wanted to explore that. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put uh, Evan and David on hold for just a second. Let you know about a new podcast that I think you should check out. It's not new, uh, but the new season is out. It's called The TED Interview. It's done by the fine folks at TED, and it's hosted by Chris Anderson, who's the head of TED. In each episode, he dives deeper into ideas from the most compelling TED speakers. Uh, You could hear Susan Cain on the minds of introverts and why we should actually design more of our society with them in mind. Uh, Times columnist David Brooks on living a life that is more meaningful. Amanda Palmer on how creatives can actually get paid and plenty more. Go ahead, check out the TED interview wherever you are listening to this podcast. It's available on all your podcast apps of choice. Thanks very much to them for sponsoring the show. I'd also just like to say, uh, while I'm here, as you're sitting here listening to David tell Evan about his new book, Range, may I also just remind you that Evan has a new book. It's called The Mastermind. It has gotten incredible reviews, all of them deserved. I did an interview with Evan a couple weeks ago on the show uh, all about the book. It's truly uh, a feat of journalistic strength. If you have not yet gotten your copy of The Mastermind, what are you waiting for? Go buy Evan's book. But for now, listen to the rest of his interview with David Epstein. So then, but as a writer and reporter, when you you decide, okay, I'm going to open this up, I'm going to look at all these different domains. Now, the entire world is available to you yeah. in terms of oh, yeah. Ooh, uh, yeah. art, music, and these things all end up in there. So let's take some examples, and I'm, I want to know how you find them. So yeah. like the orchestra, the orphan orchestra, uh, you can describe it better than me. I okay. remember it as the orphan orchestra. No, no, totally. Um, like, first of all, how do you find that as an example? Yeah. Well, first of all, music was essential to cover because I think next to sports, it's the most associated. In that genre of books that I was reading and sort of responding to, it's the next most common example for mm-hmm. early specialization from sports. So I knew I had to take on music. The Orphans, as I was trying to read about the development of musicians, kept seeing this reference to these orphan musicians, but couldn't find much detailed Information. I'd just pick up a little tidbit here, tidbit there. It's like here and there, like in scientific papers or in like yeah, how are yeah. you doing the searching? Yeah, like, how, usually. Where... Oh yeah, yeah. So the first the first year of both of my books, I basically try to read ten journal articles a day for every day for the year, and I don't make it every day, but I make it a lot of days. And I don't I don't have to read everything. Like I'm not going to read the methods section unless the paper is interesting to me. For then I'll go back and like see if the methods look good and stuff like that. And so I was doing that in music literature, and I would just see these. You know, in music history and in psychology of music where they will track the development, look at how people develop into musicians. And I would just see these sort of little references. And I was like, I would love to learn more about that, but couldn't find much more. And then I found the work of this one woman who had done her PhD thesis on this 17th and 18th century Venetian orphan orchestra. And this was the time when Venice was the epicenter of music and it was exploding the Baroque music movement, which is like probably where the music that's recognizable to people today sort of like begins, basically. And... I was like, man, I would love to find what it is about these orphans 
who seem to have become good musicians and like Vivaldi's muses. And I finally find that this woman was writing a book about them. She wrote one book about them, was writing another book. She died. Um, she got sick and died in the middle of her work doing another book. The woman who was, the writing, woman the who was writing the book. And she bequeathed 48 boxes of research to a rare books library at Duke that had never been checked out. And so I went there. You know, wasn't allowed to bring in pens and you have to have loose leaf paper. And it was incredible. Like, you know, I took advantage of her research, which which why in the back I like dedicate that chapter to her. I, I hope she'd be happy that somebody came along and did that. She had mounds of translated records of the adoptions of these orphans and their musical training and all this incredible stuff. Trinkets. So these orphans, they lived and learned to play music at this place called the uh, Ospedale de Pieta. And this was one of these insti- social institutions, like a social welfare institution set up in Venice because Venice had like this very vibrant sex industry and they had a problem with daughters, especially daughters of sex workers being dropped in the canals. And so they set up this institution where they said, if you bring them here, we'll raise them. Yeah. And they were trying to you know, teach them to be self-sufficient. They would learn skills, sewing, laundering, silk, and all these things. And people started donating instruments there too. And they were encouraged to learn as many different skills as they could. And so they would start trying to learn all the different instruments. And the sort of upper class people who were kind of like the board of trustees of this institution started to notice as these girls were getting good at playing, money started pouring into the institutions. So then they started saying like, huh, maybe we should do more of this. And they started buying more instruments. And the girls would have to learn to play every instrument that the institution owned. And suddenly that meant these composers were like, holy crap, like I have this like incredible laboratory for music because they can play anything. I can go in there and compose. So like Vivaldi goes and signs an exclusive contract. And this is where his, you know, the brunt of his career comes out of there. And these orphans become like the most famous musicians in the world. Mozart goes to visit twice. They sort of, you know, for a century, basically. So it's not even just like one cohort of orphans dominate music in a place where music is bigger than music has ever been anywhere, you know, until Napoleon comes and invades Venice. And the only really surprising thing about their training was that they were made to learn every different instrument. And so I just thought it was a really interesting example and way to get into what some of the psychology of music actually shows, which is also this sampling period, mm-hmm. um, like athletes. But you have to go so deep on these examples. I yeah. mean, there's a book's worth. There's literally a woman wrote a book and had another book in progress. I mean, there were several books in that, like 48 boxes. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's like a trove you would come across if you were writing a book about that. Yeah. But you have like you have like 15 of those or more than that. There's like two dozen of those things. Yeah, this book so just about killed me. How did you that's cut... the answer. <laughs> okay. That's... How did you cut off the bounds of that research? Like you talk about the Challenger disaster. Yeah. And there's rep- government report. I mean, this has been covered for years and years and years, what happened in the Challenger, and you're delving back into that. How deep do you decide to go? Yeah, that one, you know, I like studied astronomy in college. I'm a space buff, so I, I was familiar with some stuff about it. I had read, like, some of the Rogers Commission before, anyway, the investigation of the Challenger disaster. But I think you're hitting on, like, a massive writing challenge, which is how the hell do I delineate what should be in this book? Yes, Right. And that that was a challenge for me in the first book in the sport. You're like, OK, nature versus nurture sports go like what 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 should I include? But not nearly the challenge it was with this. How broad or specialized to be go. I'm like, oh, crap. so sports and music. I know those have to be there after that. I don't know what's going in. And basically, I do this wide searching that I, I used to sort of chastise myself for this, like because I'm so inefficient, I'll go down some rabbit hole for a week and come back out and be like, how the hell did I ever think that was going to be in the book? Mm-hmm. You know, but now I've sort of realized that maybe or maybe I'm just self-justifying, but that maybe my competitive advantage is like searching really widely, partly because I have like time and autonomy to do this. And I end up with a bunch of stuff that's nonsense, but also find some things that that other people don't. And I, I create this, we're getting in the nitty gritty here, but I create this thing I call a master thought list where like as I'm going through these papers, I write down like what's sort of the the one line that sticks out to me about this paper. I put the citation down or the link or a video or whatever. And as these things start like coalescing around a topic, I move them toward each other on the master thought list. It's a it's like a word processor document, like a mm-hmm. pages document. And then as they really coalesce and there's like a topic, it's like, okay, all this stuff is about some certain topic. I put what I call a tag above it where it's like I name what's that concept. And then I type a bunch of words that I think I would search if I wanted to word search it on that document. And I keep doing that. And then I start moving similar tags toward each other. And basically it ends up as if it's like a movie storyboard where I've got like, 
you know, this concept leads to this concept leads to this concept because one of the challenges is trying to make it not just a bunch of stapled together magazine articles and right. feel like this sort of escalating exploration of a question for which I can't possibly have a perfect answer. And so, but that ends up becoming sort of my movie storyboard. So in some ways it's like, there are certain topics, sports, music, I know I have to take on. There are some topics I really want to take on, like art, um, because I'm interested and I want to learn more. And part of the reason I like this job is because I get to, like, I have a master's degree in environmental science, and and I learn some of these topics that go into the book way better than I ever learned that to get the master's degree. Because like, you know, you have to go nuts on it basically, and and self educate, and also like the world's experts will take your phone call. Whereas when I was a grad student, they wouldn't. <laughs> um, yeah, and so. To some degree, it's time, right? There were more topics I wanted to explore, but with the time I had, these were sort of the topics that had coalesced and, you know, that I thought I could sort of link together. And there were others that I was interested in exploring that just like didn't really fit. So I kind of like left them out, like multilingualism and all these sorts of things. So yeah, so it's a little bit haphazard, but it's kind of, I mean, really it's a roadmap of my own brain exploring this topic and what coalesced in time for me to make my deadline. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I will say it's like, it's nice to hear the specific nitty gritty of how you did it, because there's a way to read this book where you think that you just thought of this idea and then you were like, you know who fits into that? Kepler. You know who else fits into that? Van Gogh. And also there's a woman who was the CEO of the, like that these are ideas, these are uh, notions that are already in your head as opposed to things that came about through a kind of movement across yeah. Research, yeah, yeah, and I mean, it still does reflect some of my interests. Like again, astronomy, like Kepler, someone I'm interested in, mm-hmm. and and I had read some of his journals before, so like, I was a little bit aware that that he uses analogical thinking. He would draw on lots of domains, but most of it comes out of you know sometimes in reading the scientific journal papers, there'll be some like just small reference to the orphan musicians or to how Kepler thought, and then that starts you down this this track. So like, I would go to when I still lived in New York. When when I started doing this book, I would go to the I have an alumni reading card at Columbia, and I would go there, and there are four computers that even if you're not a student are logged in simultaneously to every journal that the university has access to, and hyperlinked. So you can go down to the citations of a paper, click the hyperlinks, and get to any other paper from there instantly. So you can traverse like this incredible network of knowledge so quickly. So I'd stick a flash drive in there, download like 300 papers, you know, and sometimes these scientists will just put offhanded mentions of a story that like is interesting in relation to their work. And then it's up to you to sort of dive down them. And sometimes it turns out they're totally wrong when they mention these things. Like this is how I learned in the sports gene. Scientists keep mentioning Michael Phelps, his proportions being due to Marfan syndrome, which he does not have and says in his biography, he's been tested for many times, <laughs> does not have. So they'll just be like, study, 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 Marfan syndrome, you know, which some prominent athletes like Michael Phelps have. So I followed up on that. Yeah. And, and if it were true, I would have put it in the book. But it turns out it's not true. So it doesn't go in the book, but they will drop those little notes. So I actually find a lot of stuff that way. Well, there, there's a type of book that's like this book where the person doesn't do any reporting, I think, that's out there that's problematic. And every time I found that every time you were talking about someone who was modern, it would get to a point where you were talking to that person. And that feels like it's bringing a reporting perspective into the research. But again, that seems to expand the time that it takes to do this book exponentially like finding what's the woman's name Hasselbein Hasselbein Francis Hasselbein yeah Yeah, like actually engaging with her as opposed to reading about her in papers and then saying okay well I I know enough about her yeah yeah I mean a couple things on that one is you know I'm a reporter and so like I know I'm going to find out stuff if I talk to somebody that I'm not going to find out any other way also I want to fact check the things with them right like again Michael Phelps doesn't have Marfan syndrome good thing to know before you put it in the book Um, and those make the stories rich, of course. It, it does increase the time by a lot, especially Frances. She, she's a former CEO of the Girl Scout. She's 103, still works five days a week at the Francis Hesselbein Leadership Institute. And like, you know, military leaders and legislators like line up to see her. So it takes some time to kind of get in there, which is one reason why I had to leave ProPublica to finish this book, because I could not do them at the same time. Like I had to just, unlike with the sports gene where I could do it and, you know, topics kind of coincided with things I was doing. I just couldn't. I realized I wasn't even going to be close. So, you know, I made the hard decision to leave a job that was a great, great job that I really liked uh, and an editor that I loved to try to finish this. So it did take that time. But something came to mind when you said, you know, the the interviewing makes it so much richer. I, I think of, so Adam Alter is an author I like. He's a psychologist at NYU and he wrote a first book and the book is interesting, but he's an ex, you know, he's an expert. So he doesn't really like interview anybody and it's just like interesting research result, interesting research result, which are very interesting. But his next book, he decided to say like, 
yeah, I'm a psychologist, but I'm actually going to like interview my colleagues and these other people. And, and it's so much richer, you know, and, and that we take that for granted because we're reporters, basically, that like, of course, you have to go talk to everybody and you find out stuff. You're going to find stuff you didn't know you were looking for. Right. So you've mentioned ProPublica and we've mentioned uh, Sports Illustrated. So let's go back because one of the things you talk about in the book, I mean, it's about not specializing too early in a way. Yeah. Um, and it's about there's actually like a bunch of different kind of aspects to the book, but one of them is sort of moving between domains and having outsider perspective on those domains. And you seem to have moved through a number of domains in your Mm -hmm. uh, career and life. So you started out in science, right? Yeah. Where'd you go to college? Let's start there. I went to Columbia. And shortly after deciding I wasn't going to go to the US Air Force Academy, which is a little bit different than Columbia. Right. (laughs) So that was your first sort of like switching it up. Why, why that change? Why were you originally going to go to the Air Force Academy and then decided not to? I wanted to be an astronaut. Like I wanted to go be test pilot, then be an astronaut. And that was, you know, and I went as far as took the physical test, got a congressional, you know, you have to get a congressional recommendation. Yeah, that's Basically the went all requirement, the yeah. last minute decided, hmm, I'm starting to like not like taking orders as much. And maybe I should not constrain myself because I'm actually not sure if I want to do engineering, <laughs> you know, and that's where the Air Force Academy is much stronger. Um, and so at the last second, I sort of bailed. And I was also getting interested in running track and wanted to do that. And I thought that would be harder at the Air Force Academy with all the other demands. And yeah, so I ended up at Columbia figuring I'd like to study political science. Like suddenly going from having this very concrete goal to being like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Took some political science classes, not, you know, interesting, but didn't really light my fire. Went out to basically one of my training partners in college track was a biomedical engineer who had spent a summer out in Arizona when Columbia was leasing the Biosphere 2 campus, you know, like that bubble. Yeah. But they also leased all this incredible land in the Sonoran Desert outside of it. And he was like, go out there, trust me, take a summer class. And I'm like, great, I'll have a lighter load during track season. So let's get some summer credits. So I go out there and it's like blows my mind, you know, taking geology class and astronomy class. I'm like, life is like spread out horizontally there in the desert, like clinging to this or that vein of water for life. And all of a sudden I'm seeing horizontally in a way I wasn't used to because I'd mostly been in cities and haven't traveled a lot. And I'm like, whatever gets me more of this and teaches me how these like ecosystems and these mountains were made. And all of a sudden it's like igniting all this stuff that, you know, I'm just trying to have an easier track season. And here it is like, shoot, like I think I I really found something. So I go back determined to study geology and then back again and, and study astronomy and and whatever will get me more of these trips and, and interested in this, I end up working on a boat and living in a tent in the Arctic and all this kind of stuff. So I went and started grad school in science. And so I sort of got to have that sampling period that really ignited this this interest that I didn't know I had. Um, so why were you a poor fit for scientific research? I, I went, when I did my first research experience, I thought I was going to go into it being like, I'm going to love this. It's going to be the greatest thing. And it was... And I didn't feel that way, like spending all day with a gas chromatograph, which I won't even explain, but that just didn't, you know, it was so narrow. Like you pick one problem. When I, when I got into grad school, I mean, I was studying like Arctic plant physiology, basically, and I loved being around the Arctic, but like I was like, you know, a year into grad school and I'm so narrow already that I'm even like siloed from other people who are studying Arctic plant physiology. And I read I, your paper, by the way. So, did you really? I mean, I read the abstract. I couldn't understand the abstract anymore, <laughs> to be honest with you. That, I, I can't say I did. But, but I do like that, that in the journal of like Arctic and Antarctic Tundra or whatever, my contact information is at Sports Illustrated. It shows how quickly <laughs> I swerve in my careers. Um, but yeah, so, so I got to the point where I was asking myself, like, am I the type of person who wants to spend my whole life learning one thing new to the world or much shorter spans of time learning things new to me and translating and sharing them? And there was a specific topic that merged my interest in sports and science I wanted to write about. And so I decided to get off that track, the science track. And I never would have guessed that like my that science background would be like the most helpful thing for helping me at Sports Illustrated where I kind so of became ha- a science So how did writer. literally you make that transition? I, I worked in a lab and there was a man and a woman who, instead of being in a PhD program, were um, trying to become science writers. And they were just going to do masters and then they were going to go to journalism school. And, and they, they were much more like-minded to me than most of the other people in the lab. So I was like, these are kind of like a little more my people's science writing. Like, what's that about? Because I didn't really, I guess I wasn't, I wasn't a big science reader at the time. Hmm. And um, I, I wasn't a big reader at the time. <laughs> That's probably more accurate. <laughs> and so I sort of started to explore that. And so eventually I, I also applied to journalism school and took a night class in environmental reporting, you know, where it's like, okay, here's here's something I at least might have a little bit of a foothold in because I know about environmental science. Mm -hmm. Loved it. Freelance my first piece. 
and was like, this is what I want to do. And so then I transitioned to journalism school. And then you worked at the Daily News, right? Yeah, my first kind of stable job was as the guy who starts at midnight and goes to the morning at the New York Daily News, which like, as you can imagine, nothing happy that's going in Daily News happens between midnight and 10 a.m. But a lot um, of interesting things happen. A lot of interesting things happen. Incredible boot camp for reporting. I applied for the internship there and they were kind of like, yeah, no, because I didn't have much experience. They're like, we're not, you know, all I had this science crap on my resume. And they then kind of came back to me. Someone sort of vouched for me a little bit and they came back to me and said like, you know, you can stay on if you will start at midnight because this guy who works at midnight is leaving, basically retiring. And so I got trained on the midnight shift and man, was that a great boot camp for reporting. Like you learn how to track people down who aren't in a phone book, you know? Um, so what was a night like? What's a night on the midnight shift at the Daily News look like? It's so-called lobster what shift. I'm still not sure why it's called the lobster shift. This is um, when? This roughly? was uh, like 2004 to like 2005. Yeah, it was about a year from like mid-2004 to mid-2005 basically. I, I, I don't really know. Is that because like lo- do lobster men work overnight? Like lobster fishermen work overnight? I don't know. I don't know why it's called a lobster shift. But basically you're the only person in the office and you go in and you have like a, a number of radios that are picking up police chatter yeah and like also scanners yeah scanners and also a beeper where some other guy who's watching many more scanners will like text stuff to the beeper and and so you learn what's called the 10 code which is the police say you know for, the call you hear the most is edp emotionally disturbed person which is like any of us when we're upset like that call comes over like every two seconds but if you hear something like ten thirteen, which means officer needs assistance then you're like Somebody might be shooting, like there could be something. So you start to try to get this sense of like, what should I go out on? And <laughs> there's this odd network of people who would call in and just be like, hey, it's Vinny. I'm out in uh, Jackson Heights and they're putting up police tape around a scene. I think there might be a hostage. And you're like, who are you? And he's like, don't worry about it. Long time caller. And you're like, <laughs> all right, all right. And the photographers, the night photographer, like one of the most useful guys was a night photographer who'd been like an insurance inspector. So he was inspect car crashes, see if they were on purpose or not, you know, and fires and stuff to see was this arson or not. And sometimes I'd go with and say like, you know, what are you hearing? Can you drive by and take a look? Because you have to decide you're the only person in the office should you leave the office. Right. What 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 is yeah. worth pursuing? Yeah. And so, you know, when you try to make some police sources who can tell you like, is this a real thing? But But like this photographer, I remember asking him like, you've been here like, 30 years, why are you still working? You could get promoted, you know, whatever, off of midnight morning. Hate traffic. I'm like, okay. That's, so you decide to live like an owl because you, you hate traffic. Um, but yeah, so you just sort of cobble it together from all these different avenues, including like these tipsters, I still have no idea who they are, and say like, is this something I should run out on or not? Um, and that's pretty much what it was. And, and you know, it was, it was primarily homicide. So that's incredible reporting training but then you switch domains and go to do sports reporting. Between I had between those, I I I actually decided my time was up the Daily News. One because it's a bit of a one trick pony. So once you learn the street reporting, like I was never using a phone. Everything was basically street in the Daily News, and very rarely using a phone anyway, unless you're calling like an official for some kind of comment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got in a situation once where I and and some other reporters, I think, like accidentally informed someone before anyone else had that, like his entire family had died in a fire. Um, And at that point, I was like, I'm done with this. You know, the competitive drive to do well in the story is 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 getting away from me in some ways that I'm not I'm not comfortable with. Um, So you were trying to get a comment from them about what had happened, but they didn't actually know what had we, happened. We were like at the scene of the fire, like when he came home, basically. So we were there like before he was, I don't know where he was. And yeah. And I think it turned out to be some kind of arson or something. I can't totally remember, but I was like, that's my, my days are numbered on this, you know? And that's not to say that I don't think that kind of reporting is incredibly important. Cause I did think that, you know, we glorify like reporting on deaths in war and abroad. And, and I think we really have a duty to report on the deaths in our own streets too, and chronicle those because sometimes like there's a lot of stuff that that's tied to like systemic issues we should know about those like so i did think that there was i was proud of the fact that like if someone died they were going to get in the daily news right um even though that sometimes seems like pretty grimy but i did not want to be in a situation where i was having to you know where my ethics were so far out of my own control um and so i decided to leave and i joined um a startup that didn't really exist yet called inside higher ed that mm, the mm-hmm. two of the editors of the chronicle of higher education started and and I kind of went, and that was then, that was like basically all phone reporting for a while. So I went from all street to all phone, and together, now I had like some pretty good good skills. So that was my stop between Daily News and Sports Illustrated. It seems like, in a way, some of the the ideas and range are actually encapsulated very well by a lot of reporters who get moved from one beat 
to another all the time. And you could say, well, you should stay on that beat for your whole life because you will develop a, an expertise and sources that will serve you well when the big story comes up, you'll yeah. be the person to go to. But then if you shift beats, you can kind of use those skills and have a different perspective on a new beat. Yeah. And I think you need, I think ultimately you need both of those people, right? I think like, I, I love Freeman Dyson, the eminent physicist and mathematician. As I quote one of his talks in, in range where he says, you know, we need both focused frogs and visionary birds. And he's talking about science particularly, but focused frogs are down on the ground looking at all the little details, you know, over and over and over. And the birds who are up above who can see multiple frogs and like how their information needs to be integrated. And he said, we need both for a healthy ecosystem. The problem is we're only incentivizing people to become frogs. And that's a problem because they're not flexible and nobody's integrating because they're all looking down at the mud in front of them. And, and I sort of agree in most places, that's what we need. And we need both. It's just that we're telling everybody to be one, basically. And I think even the Times, doesn't the New York Times kind of almost forcibly shift people around beats? Or like, I remember when I interviewed there before um, about a job, they were telling me that there's someone who's in charge of like helping people move around to try different beats. Although I think the Science Times was the one section where they said they didn't move people around. They kept people sort of in science because it's really helpful to sort of have a have some institutional memory about like, you know, oh, another like eggs will kill you or a great for you study. Like maybe I should know the <laughs> right. 40 that have been reported in the past three years so I don't just do the press release. And right. Study thing. Or some of that astronomy like uh, discoveries in the galaxy and yeah. sort of like physics. You need one of those people yeah. who sort of like understands how that moves the ball yeah. forward. Yeah. In a way and, that... and those people are still journalists. In a, I mean, journalists are right in a certain way. They're just within that realm of of journalists they focus a little more narrowly yeah so when did the um you said we touched on this earlier because you said something like i went to sports illustrated because i wanted to report about a very specific thing yeah what was that specific thing that was so part of what got me into journalism was i had a training partner in track and field who dropped dead at the end of a race and uh you know one of the top ranked guys for his age in the country was going to be the first in the family of Jamaican immigrants to go to college, all these sorts of things. And my local paper, you know, said heart attack. And I'm kind of like, what does that even mean for someone in this situation? I don't even know what heart attack means. And I just became curious over the years. Eventually, I asked his family if, well, they signed a, a waiver allowing me to gather up his medical records. And it turned out that he had this single gene-caused disease. Um, it's by far the most common cause of when you hear of young athletes dropping dead, more common than people think, very commonly misdiagnosed. And eventually I started to think, you know what, I want to merge my interests in sports and science and write about this for an audience that's not like me, like spending their disposable income on Scientific American or whatever. Um, and I'd grown up reading Sports Illustrated. And so I said, I, I want to do that for Sports Illustrated. And so that was sort of my my goal and reason for targeting Sports Illustrated initially. Yeah, I don't know if we've ever talked about this. You know, I had one of my closest friends also uh, died of the same condition. No, I didn't know. Uh, running a marathon, running the San Francisco Marathon, Bill Goggins. Yeah, actually my book is dedicated to him. Wow. No, I had no idea. It happens more often than people think. And I think I sort of knew. So I, when I went into Sports Illustrated, I came in as a temp fact checker. Mm. right? And I pitched my story about sudden cardiac death in athletes. And they're kind of like, you know, you're the temp fact checker and say no. And then sort of because of some my crime reporting background and my science background, they kept me on for projects. So my temp thing got extended. And then the Olympic marathon trials for 2008 for the Olympic team in Beijing comes to Central Park. And one of the top 10 guys and the country drops dead like 15 blocks from our office. And, you know, that's some saying that's like news is what happens in an editor's neighborhood or something. And so then they're like, hey, do you still want to write about sudden cardiac death? So then I'm like, you know, the temp fact checker and I have like a cover story about sudden cardiac death and athletes that, that looked oh, wow. like we had put in like a year, you know, years of research yeah. and somehow turned it around like in a week. And so that's sort of how, that's sort of how I became the science writer at Sports Illustrated. And then, so how did you get into the covering the steroid issue? Um, so at the time... The first thing they asked me to write was like, can you look into, we want to write like a sidebar about the science of some of these like chemicals that are coming up in this famous steroids report that like people don't really know how they work. What are they about? And I'm like, that's a great assignment for me. Like I'll start going through some endocrinology papers or whatever else. And so I did that and they were like, well, that worked really well. Like, would you like to write a piece about like some of the science of steroid stuff? And so it sort of took off from that. But I also realized coming from a crime background that I kind of had a stomach for investigative stuff that like mo most sports writers are wonderful, but most of them get into it because they like sports and they want other people to like sports, which is great. Like I grew up reading it, but it also leaves room for someone with a crime reporting background. So one of my first story breaks at SI was still when I, I mean, I was like fact checking TV listings and a backup punter at the University of Northern Colorado stabs the starter in his kicking leg. And they're like, it's a very Tanya Harding type story yeah, for punters. Very. Um, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, an editor comes in and is like, don't you have crime reporting experience? And I'm like, 
Yes. You want to go out there and get it? So I, I remember like running to a, I had to go to Wyoming because the kid was from Wyoming. And then it's just like daily news, but in Wyoming. And so at that point I was filing to another reporter, but then wrote my own longer version online. And they were like, that worked well. Also, like maybe you should kind of be our like crime guy, you know? So I kept sort of picking up these, these jobs. And it was clear to me that steroids were becoming a big deal. Like the Mitchell report came out and that I sort of had this mix of crime and sports stuff and crime and science stuff that like played to this perfectly and that I was willing to do. And so, you know, everyone at SI who was like 20th in line to be the next NFL beat reporter, I just sort of like flew past them because of this odd background. So I feel like there's another part of the book that's not just about specializing early and it's actually about moving from one thing to another, even throughout your life. Yeah. And it's in a way, like an argument for quitting things, but quitting things at the right time. Yeah. And you've sort of moved around a lot and quit things like science at different yeah. times. And the question is, what is your level of confidence at the moment of quitting that the next thing is going to be the fit? That's that's a great question because that, that's like the trick, right? Um, th- this this phrase I loved, Herminia Ibarra is a, a woman in the book, who, who a professor who studies career transitions. And she has this phrase, I love, you learn who you are in practice, not in theory. And what she means is she marshaled all this psychology research and found that people have this idea that we can just introspect and know like what we should be doing. It's kind of like the commencement speech advice, you know, um, just decide who you're going to be in 20 years and march confidently toward it, like as if you have any idea who, um, right. But anyway, her phrase, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory means we can't just introspect or take a personality quiz and know what we're good at and what we're interested in. You actually have to try stuff and then reflect on it. And that's how you you learn about yourself. Because otherwise, your insight into yourself is constrained by, you know, your roster of experiences, basically. And she called a book she wrote Working Identity because she found one of the reasons it's so hard for people to make these changes is because their work becomes part of their identity. So they're not just changing jobs. They're changing identities. And so she sort of goes through these traits that people have and how they set up these small, the people who do it successfully, set up these small experiments where it's like, you know, here's something I want to explore a little, or I met someone at a dinner party, sounds interesting, or joined some club that seems a little interesting. I'd like to give it a try. My hypothesis is I'll be even more interested if I, they don't say it formally like that, but they're they're setting up an experiment of themselves. And eventually they just ramp it up a little bit more until it gets to the point where they really are like, maybe this should be a career change for me or a job change. And their their friends say like, just keep it as a hobby. Like you don't want to change. You don't want to get off track. But eventually they get to a point where they're like, no, this is a better fit for me. And they make the jump and they're better off after they make the jump. But it's very psychologically upsetting when they still have one foot in one world and one foot in the other world. In Mm -hmm. the last chapter, Andre Geim, you know, the only scientist who has won both the Ig Nobel Prize for the the silliest research of the year for levitating frogs with magnets and the Nobel Prize for the discovery of graphene, this single atom thick uh, material that's like highly conductive and, and super strong. And the Ig Nobel, they actually call you and ask if you're willing to accept it because like if you're worried about your reputation. So you get you get a heads up first. <laughs> and he said that he likes to change what he does every five years, basically, because he doesn't just want to do like what he did in grad school. So he had this phrase I loved where he says, I like to say I don't do research, only search. But he says it's psychologically like unsettling when you're changing. Um, but that's been like a source of power for him. Uh, do you find it unsettling? Absolutely. Absolutely. Less unsettling than I did because it keeps like working out. And, and I think I've realized more, like when I left environmental science, I was like, and I wasn't doing, I wrote like one article about environmental science, but other than that, I wasn't really doing it. And so I was like, well, kind of, that was, you know, maybe a waste. And then, you know, as time went on, I started to realize, wait, like having familiarity with reading scientific papers and things like that is like the best thing <laughs> that's worked for me in journalism. And as time's gone on, I've realized that experiences aren't wasted. Like you just use that stuff that you, if you're reflecting on your experience and and trying to build skills, like you're going to use that stuff in whatever you're going to do. Like that becomes, you know, this this integrator of skills that that is is you. And now are you are you comfortable with uh, people looking to you for answers? Yeah, yes and no. No, because I don't have perfect answers and I'm still figuring myself out. And I still don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up. Um, yes, because because I think this this issue of how specialized or broad to be, again, is, is a topic that's important to just about everybody, either explicitly or implicitly, that we think about, that we talk about, and is usually done with pure intuition. And so my goal for myself and for others was to say, let's make this discussion more grounded in evidence, 
more productive and more interesting. Um, and so in that sense, yes, because, you know, I'd like to think that I'm contributing something to the discussion. And even if I can't give them a perfect answer, you know, I, I think I can make the discussion more productive. So yes, in that sense, no, if like they need their like life fixed or, or something like that. But, <laughs> right. Um, so last question, this takes me back to the beginning. So there's another aspect, which is applying this to your life going forward. I mean, there are like basically parenting lessons in here. They're not described as parenting lessons, but it's yeah. a way to think about pushing your kids in one direction or another. Yeah. And now I'm completing the circle by asking you the thing that I said everyone was going to ask you, which is how does it apply to how you're going to raise your own child? Yeah, because I do want to say I do not I don't plan to like force my kid to diversify any more than I do to <laughs> right. force them to specialize. Like that's just another prescription, right, that you'd be forcing on them. So I think what I'm going to do. This sounds weird, but one of the lessons I most take from the book is this thing that where I'm describing how the military started retaining more officers, mm -hmm. where first they tried to throw money at people and that didn't work and they wasted a half billion taxpayer dollars. And what has started working is what they call talent-based branching, where instead of saying like, this is your career track, up or out, they say, we're going to pair you with a coach. Here's a bunch of, which one do you want to try first? Give it a try. We'll then reflect on you and see like, were you a good fit with that? Are you interested in that? Do your talents fit? Try another one. And you get a period of sampling before and the coach helps you reflect. And so I think that's the approach I would take with my kid, the talent-based branching, right? Say, so here's a bunch of things. I'll expose you to a bunch of things. And my role will simply be to help them reflect on that because it turns out that reflection is a very, you know, important part of like assessing yourself and learning about your experiences, which I wouldn't have totally guessed, but I think is in sort of short supply as you can fill your reflection time with like reloading Twitter or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think my main goal will be to make a lot of opportunities available and help him reflect on those experiences. And so hopefully he, he triangulates something where he feels, you know, fulfilled. But also, like, and maybe I shouldn't say this, like writing this performance book, but like, I don't care if he's a professional athlete. So maybe, maybe that's an advantage too. Like, I want him to be <laughs> yeah. like a good dude and, and hopefully happy, you know. Like, <laughs> the good news is we can check back in. Uh, we'll bring you back on the podcast in like three years, five years, okay. 10 years, and we'll see. And I'll come in with him and his caddy. development. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Dave, thanks for doing this. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That's all for this week's long form podcast. I'm your co host, Evan Ratliff. Thank you to Dave Epstein for coming into the studio. His book is called Range, if you want to go check that out, and I think you should. Thanks to my co-hosts, Aaron Lamer and Max Linsky, to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Louisa Garbowit, and as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp. Go to readthissummer.com to check out their offerings for the Decatur Book Festival and Pit Writers. Thanks. See you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.